Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB, and I'm joined in studio today by LARB Managing Editor Medea Ocher and LARB Editor-at-Large Kate Wolf. Hey, Eric. Hi, Eric. Today we have a conversation that Kate and Medea had with filmmaker Werner Herzog about his latest documentary, Meeting Gorbachev, a film that looks not only at the Soviet leader's life, but also the rise and fall of the USSR and questions about nuclear proliferation. So I wish that I could have been on this, but can you please tell me what it was like? So this film is really up my alley, obviously, because I remember Gorbachev. I remember seeing him on TV when I was a child. Well, many people remember that, but he was particularly notable out of all the Soviet leaders, at least for me as a little girl. Um, Why? In what way? Oh, because of the birthmark on his head. Ah, <laughs> just yes. <the> birthmark. <laughs> it was really just the birthmark. <laughs> but he was also a catalyst for a lot of change in the world, certainly, personally. And as I think Herzog makes clear in this film, in the general geopolitical makeup of the world. So he's a really fascinating figure. And it was interesting to hear him talk, just talk and answer questions in the film. And it was interesting to meet Werner Herzog, too. Yeah, that was I mean, kind of amazing. I was kind of shy. Is he, like, intimidating in person? No. Very, he was very yeah, nice. Very nice and talkative, open. But, but of course, I was intimidated. <laughs> I'm intimidated by no one. So. Wow. Good for you. No, I was fine. Spoke nice. <laughs> All right. Well, like a true Russian emigrate yeah, from the yeah. Soviet Union. <laughs> right. Um, okay. Well, without further ado, then let's get to this conversation. And the next voices that you'll hear are Kate and Medea speaking with Werner Herzog. Great. Let's do it. Yeah. We are excited to have Werner Herzog in the studio with us today. Herzog is the famous filmmaker who listeners will no doubt recognize as the visionary behind such movies as Aguirre, The Wrath of God, Grizzly Man, and Cave of Forgotten Dreams, among many, many others. He joins us today to talk about his recent documentary, Meeting Gorbachev, in which he interviews the former president of the Soviet Union in a wide-ranging conversation that touches not only on Gorbachev's life, but also on the questions of nuclear proliferation, the reunification of Germany at the end of the Cold War, and the fall of the Soviet Union. Werner, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Let's begin, I think, by just asking you, what brought you to Gorbachev as a subject? In fact, the whole project started with my co-director, Andre Singer, with whom I have a long history of collaborations. And he had started with a German network to... Uh, negotiate with Gorbachev's people and Gorbachev himself to do a documentary on him. And then Andre, and I had no idea about all this, Andre approached me and he said, it would be great if you could do the conversations. You have been so much in favor of the German reunification. You have walked around Germany following the border and Gorbachev mentioned that once. He knew about it, apparently. Mm. And I said, yeah, this sounds fantastic. And of course, I did the conversations with Gorbachev in Moscow, but I grew more and more into the film. It was my part in this work was more than just doing the conversations. Mm -hmm. And what is Gorbachev's place in Russia now? He's a tragic figure in some ways, as you mentioned, towards the end of the film. 
it's not that he's held in such high esteem in his own country. Is that correct? You cannot generalize. There is a part of the Russian population who sees him a traitor. And those are the ones who are still dreaming of the Soviet empire. He was against the dissolution and the demise of the Soviet Union. And only a few days after it came apart, he resigned. He stepped back. And I think the climate is changing now. It's warming much more towards him. Only a few days ago, the film was shown at the Moscow Film Festival. Andrei Singer, the co-director, was there and he says there was a huge interest in the film Huge crowds, they couldn't admit everyone, and enormous applause for Gorbachev with great mm. warmth. So, and I noticed when I did the third conversation with him, which was half a year after the first one, that speaking, for example, to a taxi driver or people in the subway, I had the feeling that people were warming up to him much more than they used to, to like him. That's interesting. Do you think it is? Partly that this nostalgia for the Soviet Union is fading a little no, bit? No, no. I think there's no real nostalgia. You hardly see anyone who is nostalgic. And the current president, I think, is not nostalgic either. Putin is somehow labeled as wanting the empire back. That's mm -hmm. nonsense. That's a Western narrative. Mm -hmm. That's the last thing that's going to happen. Oh, interesting. Would you tell us what you think the current situation is? Well, it has nothing to do with the film on Gorbachev, That's but true. the current situation, I can only characterize it very simply. The demonization of Russia is a very big mistake of the Western media, and it is a very big mistake of Western politics. And the film points to a situation where the most unlikely characters you could ever put in one room, Ronald Reagan, and Mikhail Gorbachev all of a sudden caught on with each other and changed the world. What was your experience of the Soviet Union? You said earlier that you had visited. I um, have not just visited, I always worked. In the 70s, I was as an actor in a science fiction film in the Ukraine and in Tajikistan, which at that time was part of the empire. And later, of course, I made a film in Russia and I have seen the result of the empire coming apart under Yeltsin, which was the most miserable times for Russia. The country was literally sold out to organized crime. They are still called oligarchs, but that's a euphemism. That's not correct. And it brought real, real hardship to the people. The ruble fell to one thirtieth of its value within a single week. And people were impoverished and police was not paid, pensions were not paid, teachers were not paid. It was catastrophic. And did you, at the time, think of Gorbachev or understand him in a particular way? Well, my closest affinity to him was his extraordinary role in reunification of my own country, Germany. And he was a driving force and he allowed the reunification without bloodshed. Mm -hmm. You see, normally events of that magnitude of taking part of a country away and reunification of two parts that were enemies of the Soviet Union who caused 25 million 
people in Russia to die. They had 20, 25 million victims of the war and it was the fault, of course, of Germany. And having the nerve and having the vision to allow the reunification without any bloodshed at all is trademark Gorbachev and it's part of his greatness. And that's how I related to him. But of course, I knew he had ended the Afghan war. I mean, I'm speaking now 10 years of occupation of Afghanistan during the Soviet times. And of course, I knew uh, his role in changing the entire structure of the Soviet Union and starting Glasnost, which means transparency of politics. So there was a completely new voice and everybody could see it and observe him and see him. I want to talk a little bit about his rise to becoming the leader of Russia because your film does a really wonderful job of tracking his beginnings. And even though he's a wonderful student, he's wonderful at agriculture, he seems exceptional within a reasonable limit. You don't paint him as some hero on a horse. And his rise is kind of surprising, right? I mean, he was from the provinces. He studied law. How surprising do you think him becoming the leader of the country was? I think at the time he became a leader of the Soviet Union, it was not a surprise anymore because before him, the entire system and the entire leadership had become fossils. Brezhnev died a completely senile man. Then Andropov took power and he died within 12 or 13 months. Then Chernyenko was elected already terminally ill. So all in their 80s. And all of a sudden there's a vigorous young man there, Mikhail Gorbachev, who had grand visions and leaders outside of Russia and the Soviet Union saw him coming. And I think the Russians or Soviet people saw him coming. There was something almost inevitable that he would become the anointed new leader. And was it unusual for someone from the provinces to gain so much power? Not necessarily. I think when you look at American politics, for example, no president ever came from New York City or from Chicago or mm -hmm. from Los Angeles or from New Orleans. You see, they normally come from the periphery, a peanut farmer, in Georgia, <laughs> right. Jimmy Carter becomes yeah. president. By the way, sorry, I forgot Trump. He comes from New York. The current president, my apologies to Trump. From a yes. borough, and I'm from, from Queens, Manhattan, which is where anyway, I come yeah. from. Yes, yeah. anyway, we can label him a, a New York character because his business was and still is in New mm -hmm. York. And so Gorbachev modernizes the country to some degree, and his approach is very, he's actually interested in making things work in a way that, previous leaders weren't making things better for just average citizens. But the film also focuses on Chernobyl as a turning point. Do you think that he would have been the leader he was without Chernobyl? I cannot really speculate, but it is evident and he describes it very clearly in his memoirs. Chernobyl was an event that was downplayed in the Russian media as an accident, yes. And he, asking about the details, was told by the president of the Academy of Sciences in Russia. He was told, this is just a minor incident and you just drink a few shots of vodka and you sleep it off. And only days later, it became clear that there was 
monumental incompetence in the leadership, monumental incompetence in communication of the real dangers, of real things. And for him, it was the turning point. He describes it very clearly in his memoirs, the turning point, the time before Chernobyl, the time after Chernobyl. He knew he had to put the restructuring into effect right now. Something that I wanted to ask you was about the process of interviewing a politician. They are not always the easiest of people to speak with and to get to talk to you honestly. What was he like to talk to and to ask questions to? Well, number one, he's an ex-politician. Yes, that's true. And it was always clear he would not encounter a journalist. I came with empty hands and Mm. I told him I don't have a catalogue of questions I'm just curious. Let's engage in a conversation. And he knew he was not dealing with a journalist. He knew, he said, you're a poet. (laughs) And apparently (laughs) he was well prepared. He had a stack of informations on me and on my films and apparently had seen one or two of them and was very fond of meeting me before I even entered the room. He was coming at me and signaling that he would enjoy this. And also, there was a signal out there. He was glad that he wouldn't speak to a journalist because apparently it would be the last time he would ever speak to a camera. And he he has never done it again. He made that explicit before you came? Indirectly, we know explicitly through his entourage. Is there a reason for that? I think he had a fundamental trust in me and I was well prepared. I had done my homework Mm -hmm. and like him, we were in very spirited conversation, not just politics. You see the soul of the man and you, at fleeting moments, you even seem to look into the soul of Russia itself. That's interesting. Why do you think Gorbachev provides or in some ways gives access to the soul of Russia? Because he's so Russian in his culture and in his personality. He's like a great character out of a great tragic Russian novel. (laughs) What do you think is so tragic about him? I think his perception in part of the Russian population that he's a traitor, that's a, a tragic misunderstanding and he has to live with it. Although I must say it, it's getting better, but much of what you see when you look at Gorbachev uh, looks and sounds familiar as, as if he were out of a great Tolstoy novel. Mm-hmm. And also his, his long span of life from the start to the end and still, and well, that, it, that it could turn start again. To end, I have to uh, correct you. Oh, uh, from the start Gorbachev, to the... Gorbachev, uh, well, it's not. Is, it hasn't ended yet. So it hasn't ended. He's 88 years now. Not in very good health, but I hope he's going to be around the next 25 years. And why do you think he's so wary of journalists? He's not wary of journalists, I wouldn't say so, but I, I think he was wary of the everyday kind of encountering media or encountering the opinion of the world. And I think he was glad that he spoke to somebody who was not in the métier of political comment or not in the métier of journalism. All this, he took me as a poet. There's an amazing scene in the film that's found footage of him 
signing his resignation letter and the media wanting to capture a shot of him signing it, you know, as a little pop boiler for the segment. To make a TV spectacle out of it, yes, and And, he refuses. Yes, I thought that said something very strong about his character and his willingness to be used by the media. He would sense it from miles away that somebody was coming at him to manipulate him. Something that I was wondering also while watching this film is, to your understanding, there's an interesting part where he seems to still genuinely believe that he could have reformed the Soviet Union, that it was not going to collapse. What do you think? Does it seem like he still genuinely thinks that that was a possibility? No, not really. He describes it as banging his head against a brick wall. He was shrewd enough to understand that the demise of the Soviet Union was irrevocable and it was going on and it came like an avalanche and it accelerated. And he actually was taken by surprise by many of, because there was a secretive meeting between Yeltsin, at that time president of Russia, of the Russian Republic, and the Ukrainian president and the president of Belarus in a forest in Belarus. And they met secretly and created a blueprint for the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And we found footage of that event Mm -hmm. that nobody has ever seen. The secret meeting and the secret, one of the presidents even interviews a typist and says to her, do you know what you are typing here? The lady says, yes, this will go down in history, what she's Mm going to type. So it's really incredible footage that we found and It's not just the conversations with Gorbachev. You have to look at the caliber of the archival research. And that's mostly Andrei Singer and a phenomenal team of archivists in Russia and in in London. I wanted to ask you about that because I noticed the use of archival footage for some reason, maybe because you stay with it longer than other documentaries normally use it as just a little template and cut away. It's so powerful in this film. Had you had much experience with using archival footage in your own films? Yes, I did. For example, Little Dita Needs to Fly, the footage from the Vietnam War. I have done it before, but in this case, it's a great, great achievement of Andre Singer, the, the second director of this movie. I contributed, of course, I do remember when I saw on Austrian television, I used to live in Austria at that time, The Austrian foreign minister and the Hungarian foreign minister are cutting the barbed wire together and bringing the Iron Curtain down. And at evening news, I watch the anchor woman who has a long rap about slugs and how you fill a bowl with beer because slugs as lovers of beer would drown in the beer. I said to myself, do I see correctly? Do I see what I see? And then only later under miscellaneous, there's a short report about the Iron Curtain coming down. (laughs) And I remembered it and I said, find it, please find it. It must be still around in the Austrian TV archive. And we actually found it. So you had remembered that being the case. Yes, I remembered it. It was such an incredible moment. You see, sometimes you have these moments when you watch the news, you ask yourself, do I see what I see? And it had turned out that you had, in fact, in the film, you see a clip of the anchor 
talking. And you see the slugs. And you see the slugs, <laughs> and then, yeah. And then Very funny. Uh, miscellaneous. Yeah. And you see the, the photo of barbed wire. You're listening to the LAR Radio Hour, recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. We've been speaking with Werner Herzog, the director of Meeting Gorbachev. We will return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. So we have Sally Rooney in the studio with us today. Sally Rooney is the author of Normal People and Conversations with Friends. And Sally's going to give us a book recommendation. Sally, what book are you going to recommend? So a book that I just finished reading the other day on the flight from Dublin to New York was a book called The Kingdom by Emmanuel Carrere, the French writer. Mm. The Kingdom is partly a memoir of Emmanuel Carrere's quite short-lived conversion to Christianity. And it's partly a sort of retelling of the Gospel of Luke with a kind of eye for the historical detail of how that text emerged at that particular time in early, very, very early development of of Christianity as a kind of religious sect, I guess, at that time. I found it an extraordinarily moving book. I've always been interested in in Christianity, in the Gospels. And in my first novel, I wrote a little bit about the character's engagement with the Gospels in a slightly ironic way as kind of as interesting literary texts. And reading Carrere's book, The Kingdom, I really felt very challenged and confronted by the depth of Christian philosophy and the kind of compelling, the really deeply compelling nature, I guess, for someone as I was raised in um, in the Catholic faith, of the Gospels as as texts, as historical documents and as works of literature. And um, since reading it, I've, I've been going back and rereading the Gospels again. And I'm really finding it uh, just deeply challenging. It's sort of outside what I would have thought my area of interest would be. And I really, really loved the book and found it extraordinarily moving. So that is my book recommendation. What brought you to the book? Was it just your interest in the Gospels and sort of revisiting those texts? Yeah, I have a friend called Ian Malini who's just written a book called Minor Monuments, which is another fantastic book. And we were talking about his book one day, which is kind of a collection of essays and a memoir. And he told me about The Kingdom, the Emmanuel Carrere book, because we were talking about our sense that that religion, official institutional religion in Ireland has diminished massively in ways that are largely very positive for Irish society. But I guess we both shared a sense that maybe those forms and ways of thinking haven't necessarily been replaced by a system of philosophy with an equal kind of depth and a sense that maybe we're missing that depth, even as we're so glad that the repressive institutions have fallen away, that that philosophical basis is kind of gone and that there's something to be mourned there. And he mentioned this book, The Kingdom, as a way of engaging with those ideas, not really from a believer's perspective, not from a perspective of believing in the the resurrection of Jesus Christ or the sort of supernatural aspects and the miracles that the gospel describes, but the philosophical basis of Christian teaching, the sort of moral basis of Christian teaching. And those are the ideas that compelled me to go and and, and buy the book after he told me about it. And I'm really glad I did. Last question. Do you have a sense of what might replace something like that, the philosophical depth of something like the Catholic Church, or what might be able to fill that void in a society? I mean, it is such a good question, because at the moment, I think what has replaced official institutional Christianity is like rapacious free market capitalism, which is, as a philosophy, is about 
empowering the individual in a way that I'm very skeptical of. But it's about seeing ourselves as individuals and and our empowerment and our agency and our decision making as being sort of the imperative basis of how we should organize societies. So empowering each individual to make as many decisions for themselves as we possibly can is sort of like the ultimate good of society. And that's so antithetical to the Christian way of thinking that was dominant until very recently. So it's been like such a rapid and such a total radical change in how we think about how we organize society, even down to the level of like families and relationships. It's like so, so different. So I find it a fascinating question. Like, how can we think about ourselves differently? What are alternative ways of thinking about ourselves as individuals, our families, our communities and our ways of organizing society um, that are not just determined by sort of individualistic capitalism. And the answer used to be in the New Testament or in the and, and obviously for different societies through different religious frameworks. And it's not there anymore necessarily, but I still think it's worth returning to and asking what was there that we might now be missing. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, so, Sally, will you give us the name of the book again and the author? Sure. So it's a book called The Kingdom, and the author is Emmanuel Carrere. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Sally Rooney, author of Normal People, a novel. We now return to our conversation with Werner Herzog, director of Meeting Gorbachev. Something that I thought was interesting about that particular incident was that they actually had to rebuild. They had already started dismantling the barbed wire fence and they had to rebuild it in order to film this uh, segment. Yes, the final cut down. (laughs) Right, exactly. So you better shouldn't trust the media. (laughs) Well, that's... Be be cautious. Right. When you watch what you watch. I mean, I think that that is a very good lesson, Mm. but you also maybe shouldn't trust the government very much in terms of what they present to the media. Sure, so, it's a wise advice to, to anyone. Have, yeah, well, as speaking as media, you know, don't trust us either. <laughs> but something that I was wondering is how did you, there seems to be so many levels of spin that are happening during this time where one country is sort of, is presenting things in this kind of way, but they're secretly just waiting for Gorbachev to sort of put the final nail in the coffin. And there's all of these different people who are presenting the truth as in a particular way, how do you then get to what was actually happening? How do you dig through all of that? Well, I think a good part of what we see in the film is not politics made by politicians. Mm -hmm. When you see secession of the Baltic countries, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, they uh, left the Soviet Union fairly early. And you see half the population of the three countries, the almost half the population, lining up in an endless human chain, holding hands, and it goes for 600 miles or so. And I have a long, long, long helicopter shot over that. When you see that, you know it's it was not organized by politicians. It mm-hmm. was the people. And when you see Germans hammering at the concrete wall and chopping it into pieces. It was never organized by any politicians. Or hundreds of thousands of of East Germans in Leipzig, every Monday they would meet 200,000, 300,000, and they would chant together, we are the people. Because the communist government always claimed, ah, we are acting in the name of the people. people. And they showed up in, in throngs, in in 
in a sea, in an ocean of humanity, shouting, we are the people. And it was not organized by, by politicians. And you could tell what was happening on the ground was uh, somehow dictating what politics had to follow up with. Mm -hmm. I'm curious where you were when the Berlin Wall fell and and kind of where you were in your life during these events and, and how you felt them at the time. I know exactly where I was. Uh, I was filming on the most difficult mountain on this planet, on Cerro Torre in southern Patagonia, meaning the southernmost uh, tip of South America. Uh, the next town, uh, something like 400 kilometers away, we had no real communications. Five days after the wall came down, somebody came to me and he said to me, one of my assistants said to me, I just heard on a Uruguayan shortwave radio that the wall came down a week ago. <laughs> and I stopped work. I said, we have to stop. This is so big. This is so momentous. I, I cannot work on as, as if things were normal. And this kind of shudder, this kind of elation, I still feel until today. Mm. Was your family affected by the fall of the wall? No, uh, because uh, I didn't have relatives in the East. But I've seen, I've seen it with my own eyes towards the end of the communist regime in East Germany. They opened the wall for... For example, a holiday like Thanksgiving and hundreds of thousands would cross over from West Berlin, but at midnight they had to be back and the subway station was full. I saw something like 40,000 people crowding at shortly before midnight and families that would be torn apart within minutes again for maybe the next two or three years. Seeing 40,000 people in this unbelievable pain of, of being ripped apart is something you, you will never, ever forget if you had been there. The kind of diplomacy um, that Gorbachev represents is, as I think you highlight in the film, something that I wouldn't say rare, but is not his projection doesn't, doesn't match the tenor of our own times let's say, where nuclear, where, you know, Trump is making yeah. these comments about trying to uh, upgrade our nuclear arsenal and where Putin is, where it, it doesn't seem like the Reagan-Gorbachev connection is going to happen anytime soon. Uh, do not uh, misunderestimate. <laughs> <laughs> I'm okay. quoting George W. Bush. Uh, George Don't w. misunderestimate the possibilities. We have seen something extraordinary. The really most unlikely of all players, Donald Trump and King Jong-un, meet for the second time now. And this is extraordinary. How would you ever think that could happen? And hopefully it will bring, it has diffused a very dangerous situation already. Mm -hmm. Of course, it hasn't come to any palpable results, but... My hope is that uh, the most unlikely of contacts that you could ever imagine has happened and hopefully will bring positive results. But then again, at the same time, Gorbachev and Reagan, it didn't stop nuclear weapons either. There was nothing exactly conclusive reached. Yes, but, but, but it stopped the most dangerous of all. And I mean the short and medium range missiles with nuclear warheads. 
they were exterminated, they were destroyed. And you see from, from Berlin or from Paris, you can hit the Kremlin in 210 seconds. Whereas, and that makes them so dangerous, and it has happened with the intercontinental ballistic rockets, you have at least 14 minutes time. And there were moments, and they have became famous, a Russian colonel was alarmed, we have to counterattack a whole squadron of intercontinental ballistic rockets is coming at us. And he was cool. He was absolutely cold-blooded and called his outpost in Sakhalin Island, his outpost in northern Siberia, his outpost in, in the south. And it turns out it, it was a flock of geese. <laughs> and he did not send all the arsenal against the United States because there was more than 210 seconds of warning time. Mm -hmm. That's why they were so, so dangerous. And that's why I find it dangerous that they will be reintroduced now. In that story, and I, and I think with Gorbachev too, you have a central figure who has somehow found themselves in a position to decide the fate of much of the world, right? If he had done something differently, that man, if he had decided to go forward with shooting the, the weapons, Things would look very different today. If Gorbachev potentially had not been where he was, many things might be different today as well. Do you think that there are these people or these figures that decide the fate of the world? Or is it, is it somehow different than that? That's a very deep philosophical yes. question, <laughs> yeah. historical questions, yes. Sometimes it comes to very pronounced moments in history where individuals decide the fate. It does happen not all the time. Very often it's popular movements, popular like, for example, the demise of the Soviet Union has been, of course, a political decision and a power struggle. But underneath all of this, uh, a human change, endless. And uh, people uh, chipping away uh, a wall made of concrete that divided uh, Berlin and divided a country. And do you think of film as playing a particular role within these movements? Not really. Uh, film didn't play any role in the human uh, chain of the Baltic states. Uh, films have a limited power. They may change fundamental perspectives in the long run. And hopefully this meeting Gorbachev, it will not have direct results, but we have to reflect uh, this is a time where we should look back at the possibilities that opened during Reagan and Gorbachev. Have these times back, please. That's, it's funny to, to think about wanting those, <laughs> those <Right>. times back. <laughs> Good point. Maybe it's a, a reflection of how bleak things are. No, that, that was politics at, at its best, mm -hmm. in a way. It's interesting. Well, I think, you know, it was also very, very difficult. Those two figures were very divisive figures at the time. So to think of them now as a particularly... Um, a moment of cooperation or politics, and which is what Gorbachev does think had happened, that it that we have lost our, our sense and talent for cooperation in politics. No, it is not lost, uh, certainly not. Uh, and we do have alliances uh, within the West uh, that are functioning. Mm -hmm. The European Union is basically, I mean, of course it has problems, but basically is functioning. You should not forget that... Uh, there was perennial wars in Europe, war after war after war for millennia. And now we have a phase since 70 years, 
a phase of peace. It's the biggest practically performed project of peace that the world has ever seen. And if some things are not completely right and if there is some weakness here and there, uh, don't pay too much attention. The real big story is a practiced peace project of a size that we have never seen before. Mm-hmm. So that is, that's a positive note. We are in at least some era of peace, but there is this issue of climate change that seems to be looming or here on the horizon. Is there a figure of change for, for climate, for the issue of climate? Is there a Gorbachev of climate? No, but I think uh, there's more and more awareness. Mm. The problem is that it um, has different levels of experience with a modern civilization that produces way too much garbage, way too much emissions of uh, greenhouse gases, all this. So some of it uh, will be slower, some of it will be faster. It's obvious, but uh, of course we need a, a monumental effort and two basic, two basic fundamental problems. One is there are too many people on this planet. We are wasting way too many resources. Uh, the planet is not big enough for the size of humans. And the second, real second problem is the consumerist attitude of almost every single country in the world the emerging countries as well. And there are few exceptions, like the Amish, for example. They would be the definitive green people, uh, homestead farming and no electricity, no cars, no emissions of gases and so on. Um, but it would be silly to demand that we all should become Amish now and go back to homestead farming. But we can reduce our cons- consumption of things. Mm-hmm. It's a scandal. It's an outrage that in modern civilized countries, more than 40% of food is being thrown away. And it's not just the restaurants or the supermarkets. It's every single person's fridge. You, you just better be vigilant what you are doing and what you keep in your fridge and eat what is what you had overlooked So it's a personal attitude. I think we should not wait for governments to come to the Paris or Kyoto Mm. or whatever accord. Just don't wait for it. You have to do it, every single one. And then we would have a sudden, very, very quick change if, let's say, instead of wasting 40% of food in the United States, I think even 45%, if you reduce it to a very few percent only, which happens, that's okay, then you would have massive, massive changes in, for example, climate. So the promise of the Soviet Union collapses with Gorbachev. The well, s- promise of the Soviet Union, may I stop you here? Oh. Because, of course, it promised paradise on Earth. And all the social utopias of the 20th centuries came to its natural end. Fascism, communism, you just name it. And everyone, my wife who grew up in Siberia, she says, even as school children, when they were rallied on May 1st uh, for the parades and uh, there were the speeches about paradise and earth coming, they all giggled. They knew, they knew 10, 15 years before the Soviet Union came apart that this was all a lie. Mm-hmm. Everybody knew it, with the exception of a few hardcore 
party apparatchiks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's good that it came apart. And it's good that these kind of uh, utopian visions of paradise on earth came to an end. Because do you think that then frees up new possibilities? Or it will has. Yes, sure. If you look at Russia today, it's vibrant. It has its dignity back. It uh, does not pursue somehow conquest of the world, which in a way was... a, a a signature of the Soviet Empire or Trotskyism. Well, it, it does would, pursue some conquest, I mean, at least in Ukraine and in, and in Georgia maybe and many yeah, of the other states. Yeah. Yeah. But it does not pursue uh, uh, the return of the empire. That's not, not mm -hmm. going to happen. And, and the return of, uh, of the Crimea to, to the motherland is something that Gorbachev himself has welcomed as a... Um, overwhelming manifestation of the popular will. 97% of the population voted for uh, returning to the motherland, all Russians, of course. Mm. And uh, obviously, uh, this referendum was illegal. It was not foreseen in the uh, constitution of the Ukraine. However, uh, you have to look it beyond the narrative that you see in the media. Uh, if you look at... Uh, Crimea, apparently, but I've never been in the Crimea, apparently there was a very, very manifest will of the people. Hmm. Well, so it's not, it's never a shot was fired. For it, Crimea was never invaded. So you have to see it in, in the right proportions. Hmm. But of course, uh, according to international law, it was illegal And so was uh, the secession of America. It was an illegal act, period. And how, how wonderful that they acted illegally and had the Tea Party in Boston and other steps. Right. Well, I mean, I think I would also argue potentially with the fact that Russians have dignity and that I haven't yes, been there in a few look, years. But when you look at it, when you look at the time of Yeltsin, there was utmost dejection and, and misery And uh, when you are looking at Russia today, uh, you can see people have their dignity back. Mm. And, and Police in what is sense? being paid. Mm. No, uh, you, you can approach people and, and they speak very freely to you. And uh, uh, for example, all the fundamental industries, uh, resources like oil, for example, that was given by Yeltsin to the organized crime, They are forced now to modernize the oil industry and, and they do now, lo and behold, they're paying taxes. For eight years under Yeltsin, they didn't pay taxes. Mm. So th there are changes. Of course, much of it is, uh, is, is up for debate and, and I do not uh, sit here to debate Putin with you. I'm not a pundit. Yeah. <laughs> Don't drag me into that one. <laughs> no, it is a dirty, yeah. it's a dirty pool of water. But yes. I believe on Gorbachev's part, he's not portrayed in the film as any kind of ideologue, that he wanted more for his country to function well than, yeah, than a anything pragmatist, else. But yeah. a pragmatist with a great vision. It's not that he was not without a long, long-ranging vision. Hmm. Change the country, change the climate of politics create openness, create more democracy, create uh, a world that reduces the dangers that are evidently out there. And the dangers 
do come from all sorts of corners of the world where we hadn't really seen it clearly enough. Thank you so much. You're welcome. We have been speaking with Werner Herzog. His latest film is called Meeting Gorbachev. Thank you again for coming. Thank you. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 